0: Welcome to this Mount Pleasant Baptist Church podcast recorded at our Kubelup campus. We're glad you've joined us and we pray that the Lord will speak to you and encourage you through this message. Well, we are talking about dreams and dysfunctions and it's beautiful actually the distinction in the sign for dreams because there is a major distinction because our world today loves to talk about dreams. It's one of the popular Uh, I guess catchphrases that you've got to aim high, be all that you can be, reach for the stars. You know, it's not enough to just be content with your lot, whatever comes your way anymore. That's not okay. You've got to really strive to reach uh, the eternity, the stars. You've got to do everything you can to fulfill your dreams. We teach it to our kids. There's books, and uh, this was one of the articles I saw during the week, How to Fulfill Your Dreams in Seven Easy Steps. Just makes it sound so simple. We just need to dream, believe, make a plan, discuss, follow the plan, work on the plan and stick to it and enjoy the process. Not quite sure how that's going to make me a midfielder for the Fremantle Dockers, but it's, um, you know, we'll take what we can get. (laughs) My um, sister-in-law, Michelle, she posted a Facebook uh, message during the week to her wall that kind of was having a cheeky tongue-in-cheek dig at this. And uh, she started the uh, message by saying, we teach our children to dream big. And then she began to share this exchange she had with my four-year-old nephew, Joel. And so she's been asking Joel over the years as he's growing up, Joel, what do you want to be when you're an adult? Two years old, his dream was to be a fire hose. Three years old, his dream is to become a rubbish bin. The boy aims high. Four years old, he's really matured in the last 12 months. Now he just wants to be an adult. I think you'll be doing well with that one. So, you know, but in the Bible, dreams have nothing to do with what we want to get out of life for ourselves. It's nothing to do with becoming uh, the best version of ourselves. It's not about chasing success or money or becoming famous or um, you know curing cancer even or all these sorts of things that we set as our goals and dreams for the life. It's not about setting ourselves up or finding a husband or a wife and settling down with kids and. The white picket fence and all of that, dreams in the Bible are revelation from God about who God is and what He plans to do in the world. That's what a dream is. And I don't know about you, but you know, I think our world's got enough of people who are dreaming big, so to speak. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but really what we need at this time in our lives and in this world is that people who know what God is saying what God is doing and what he wants them to do to be part of that. That's what our world needs to change and to truly flourish because all of our dreams tend to be selfish in one way or another. But God is in control and he has this plan for each one of us. As disciples of Jesus uh, He himself said in the Gospel of John, I, whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Whatever I say, is just what the Father has told me to say. And so our call as disciples is to understand what the Father's doing, to hear what he's saying, and to join him in that, to manifest that ourselves and let it flow through our lives. And so we're going to see a little bit of how this works in Joseph's stories down through the years. It's a bumpy ride. It's a relatable one because nothing goes perfectly in his own uh, sight. But it's, um, it's a really interesting read. We're going to start this week with Genesis 37, verses 1 to 11. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel loved Joseph, more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were by when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brother's, His father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. A number of things that I think we can take from this story that relate to us. And the first is that God has in his sovereignty a plan for each one of our lives. Because what we find in this passage in ancient times, dreams were always understood, whatever uh, area you came from, whatever God you served, dreams were understood at the time to be a revelation of the will of God. That's how they received them, that's how they treated them, which is why the brothers are really getting angry. Because if it was just a boy in his childhood dreams, it wouldn't have affected them as much. But they took that as Joseph saying, this is the will of God. This is what's going to happen. And it, made, it ang- made him angry. So God is visiting Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, through these dreams and revealing something of the plan he has for his life. But the writer in Genesis has a clue for us in the way they word this text. That there's something bigger about Joseph's life that plays into the plan of God for humanity. It's not just about the individual Joseph. It's about what God is doing in the whole world, in the bigger picture of life. Because in verse 2, we read, he says, this is the account of Jacob. This is the account of. And that's a phrase that's used nine times earlier in Genesis. It starts with Genesis chapter 2. He says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Then it goes on to say, this is the account of Adam, the account of Noah, and so on and so forth until we get to the 10th time in the story of Jacob and Joseph. And every time that phrase is used, it's the writer saying, this is a new part of God's plan for humanity. A new direction is beginning. It's a further unfolding of God's redemptive plan for humanity. And that's important because the world tries to tell us today there's this accepted narrative that this world that we live in is random. It's here by a big bang. There's no particular reason for our lives. There's no particular purpose for our existence other than to get what the most out of life that you can for the brief moments you hear. It has this random unplanned aspect to life that it tries to throw on us, but the Bible has a different message. And the message is that since day one, since Adam through to Jesus, to us, you and me today, God has had a plan, a bigger purpose. We exist for a reason. We're not here by accident. This isn't a mistake. You being here today is not an accident. It's not a coincidence. That's why a lot of people around the church call them God incidences. Because God is in the world. In these words it says, In love it was God's pleasure and will to adopt us as his children through Jesus Christ. And so we often in, this, in our lives think about life is about fulfilling our own dreams But really it's about fulfilling God's dream. We exist for God's dream. To save, to bless, to flourish as children of his. To receive his love and then to love him in return and and our brothers and sisters with him. So God intervenes in Joseph's life for his own direction as an individual but also for all human history as he sets about redeeming humankind. Now, and the remarkable thing about Joseph in particular is that it's from Joseph that the entire family of Jacob is saved from starvation. I don't want to ruin the rest of the story, but the entire family goes to Egypt and receives the food they need for the season they're in, and then they become the nation of Israel. They become the people of God, and they then become the context for which the Savior can come. And so it's this incredible story where God says, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for your life. You have meaning. You have me in you are in my eyesight. You know Philippians 2:13 says that God is working out salvation in us. He's causing us to will and to act according to his good purposes. When Jesus comes into your life when he saves you, God begins working out salvation is one thing. It's a one-off thing. We become justified in God, but it's also an each and every day of our lives thing as God uses us to be formed part of his plan for the rest of humanity. You know, it's a bit like when you drop a, uh, a pebble into some water, there's ripples. When salvation comes, there's ripples as God works out the effect of his salvation in and through our lives. The second thing we find in this story is that he uses everything, our dysfunction, our mistreatment from others, even our own mistakes, he uses every part of it to accomplish his plan because I I don't know if you know much about this story, but Joseph is born into one of the most dysfunctional families You can ever imagine. His father Jacob, and I've tried to uh, bring a family tree to try and uh, explain. It's not the best, but um, is there one more? There it is, yeah. There's a family tree there to try and help you out. But Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah. And he himself was a child of favoritism. Isaac preferred his brother Esau. Rebekah preferred him. And the favoritism caused their family to tear apart. So Jacob was estranged from Esau for years, and he doesn't seem to have learned his lesson when it comes to his own kids. Favoritism is the way he treats Joseph. But in Jacob's own life, he uh, met the love of his life, Rachel, but then got tricked into marrying Leah. He eventually marries Rachel as well, but because of the conflict between the two of them, they bring in their servants, and their servants become wives of Jacob and bear children, and there's this whole big conflict between all the women there. And it flows down into the family. So there's generations of dysfunction by the time Joseph comes along. Jacob takes it one step further and actively shows his favoritism uh, for Joseph to the whole world. He makes him this coat, it says in one of the verses, an ornate coat. And that can be translated as a coat of many colors or other translations say it was a long sleeve But the significance of the coat is that it was the sort of thing that was given to the sons and daughters of kings and queens to show that these people are special. They're above the rest of society. They've been elevated in status. And you couldn't wear that coat and then work out in the field. So in Joseph's context, it was his father saying, this is the manager, this guy's the one who runs the show, and you brothers have to go out and do all the grunt work. So while they're slugging away in the fields, there's Joseph standing over them, and not only does he stand over them, he goes and gives a bad report to his father about what they're doing. We don't know exactly what that bad report is, but one possible translation of the two words is there that it was actually an evil lie, that he actually just went to his father and said, oh, look, these, my brothers are doing this, that, and the other, and either way, it's hard to read it any other way than that he dobbed on them. He tattletailed. And uh, having been an older brother of three uh, siblings, I can tell you that that's not uncommon (laughs) to be dubbed on from your younger brothers. (laughs) So we've got Joseph as the favorite. We've got this situation of dysfunction. Not only does he make the mistake of, you know, ratting on his brothers, he then starts to tell them his dreams. And as a 17-year-old, you can probably forgive him for the first time he shares the dream where it's everyone bowing down to him, and they all understand that meaning. But then he goes on, after seeing their reaction to that one, he takes the second dream to them and says a similar meaning dream, and then, of course, they jump on him. And the the passage is quite deliberate in showing us that it starts out as they already dislike him, but then they hate him all the more, and then they hate him all the more again. So there's this growing sense of animosity, of everyone at conflict with each other. It's passed down the generations. He's in a broken home. His mother had passed away by this stage, and he's uh, in this chaotic situation. But it's those very things that God uses to take him from those fields to the palace. And it's again spoiling the end of the story but in the palace he gets power. He's the second in charge over all the region, the civilized power of the time. He becomes second in charge and rules over the land and not only saves the nation of Egypt, but his family. And it happens because it's the hatred that God uses in the brothers to then lead him into slavery. And as he's led into slavery, he then finds his way to a house where the people around him have influence and have connections to the pharaoh. He then goes from that house to prison, and then from prison he goes to the palace. But every part of the way is carefully used and orchestrated by God to bring about this ultimate plan of redemption. And he explains in Genesis 45 that God knew all that would come and deliberately sent him on ahead of his brothers to bring about this plan of salvation. So the point I'm trying to make as I labor this point, is, you know, we often try, we often believe these lies that, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't come from a good home. I haven't had the best start in life. I've got this fear, or I've got this uh, disability, or I've got this baggage hanging off me from my life. God couldn't possibly use me. We think that we need to get our lives together. Let me just get to this stage of my life. Let me get more time in my schedule. Let me get more money in the bank and then God can use me. But none of that is true. Following our lives is never, sorry, following God's plan for our lives is never about who we are or what we can do. It's about what God, who God is and who he can be through us. And he uses everything, the garbage, the trash. I, for one, as a parent, love this truth because how many times do we dwell on the mistakes we make as parents and think, oh, if only I'd done this better or that better. My kid could go in this direction or that. But God uses everything. None of the junk is wasted in God's hands. None of you are too far gone to be part of the plan and purpose that God has not only for your life, but to make this world a better place. Romans 8:28 summarizes it this way, says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's you today. You are love. You love God. You are called according to His purpose. So in all things that unfold in your life, God will use them for His plan and his purpose. Suffering, tragedy, all of it is capable of being used by God for his glory and for your good. Third point I want to touch on is that when it comes to the plans and purposes of God, we don't necessarily know or understand all of the details, but we can trust and know that God works through them all. And I say that because when God gives Joseph the plan for his future, He gives him the end result, but he doesn't tell him how he's going to get there. He says, you're going to get bowed down to, but he doesn't share with him what it will take for this to happen. And you know, it's quite a common way of the way the Lord works in our lives is that he may give you a sense of something. He may even give you a dream or a vision or a word or something from scripture will come alive in you that you feel, this is for me, but he doesn't necessarily tell you, all the steps along the way. There's something of our relationship with him where he wants us to learn how to trust and how to love and how to not get in his way. So it's as we walk along that he takes care of the details. And Proverbs 16 verse 9 says this, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. We have our course, we have our goals in life, but God establishes the steps. And how often do the way we think we're going ends up being something completely different because God has rewired, reordered our steps. I think it's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but what He reveals belongs to us. And we don't like this. We want to know Every twist and turn, we want to know every bump and bruise before we take the journey. We want to know exactly where we're going and what it's going to take to get there. And there's fear and anxiety sometimes with not knowing. And maybe this is where you're at today. You've you kind of have a sense of where God's taking you, but you just don't know if you're going to be able to go there. You're afraid. You don't know if you can trust. But the journey is important. There's a story about a missionary who was getting ready to go home after long years of service to an African tribe. As the people gathered on the last day, they were getting ready to give their farewells and they were giving gifts to express their gratitude to this missionary. And uh, one man came forward and presented her with this remarkable shell. The appearance of the shell itself wasn't particularly Outstanding, it wasn't particularly beautiful or amazing. But the missionary recognized that it was a shell that could only be found in an era, area that took several weeks' journey to get, to find. When she commented about this to the man, he said his reply was that the journey was part of his gift. It was the effort, it was the time, it was the sacrifice, it was making the journey not knowing the conditions he would face and what exactly would happen as he went and came back. But it was the journey as well as the end itself that expressed his love and his gratitude to the missionary. And it's the same for us. You know, God doesn't promise us plain sailing. We know that as we experience life ourselves. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley or the shadow of death, I will feel no evil for you are with me. The only promise we have is that he'll be with us. But the journey is where it's at. The journey is where we see the love of God at work. We see his work as we reflect, as we look back in hindsight and see all the twists and turns of our lives that we didn't necessarily plan, but in the sovereignty of God, we see that he used for his good. And as we close, I just want to apply some of these things Uh, To us as a church, because we stand at an interesting time and season as a church, as you all know. And uh, on the 15th of August, uh, we plan to close down ourselves as a campus of Mount Pleasant and to reopen our doors the week later as uh, the Kubelup Community Church. And uh, our story has similarities with Joseph. You know, we've come from our own dysfunctional past. That was the reason Mount Pleasant had to come along and replant us in the first place, was there was chaos and disorder and dysfunction. At times we've made mistakes and we have to accept that and uh, at times we've been mistreated. (laughs) I remember a time a couple of years ago where I was at a Kubicares barbecue, a fundraiser to raise some money for them and I walked in, and one of the first people I met was a lady who, at the time, ran the Kulblup Community Association, which is just one of the local residence groups here. And this woman, uh, the first time I'd ever met her, never heard of her before, but in that first exchange, when she found out that I was from the church, she gave me a piece of her mind. (laughs) She uh, began to uh, abuse me for things that our church had done that we didn't even realize we'd done. It was stuff to do with carols and, you know, clashing with their date and It was all completely unjustified, but I listened to her, smiled and nodded kind of approach and just let her get it out of her system and then it was fine and we went on the day, on with the day in uh, preparing. But some things happened from that in that because there were others from this area who saw this exchange and understood this woman and knew what had happened, they felt sorry for me. And in their sorrow for me, they began to have favor towards us because from that moment, you know, Kubi Cares, my relationship with the guy who runs that started to blossom. And others from the Kublaup Community Association who are still there today, this woman's long gone from the general area, but the rest of them that have now come into place have opened themselves up to us. And I meet with them regularly to talk about things going on in the area, how we as a church might be able to help. But all of it God has used for his purposes. And that there's a, a very clear sense in my heart that God has a plan and a purpose for this church. He didn't let us die. He could have. He could have extinguished the flame. And to be honest, he could do it today, now, with Peter having left. But I don't believe that's his plan and his purpose. I know he's called us here for a reason. It's a reason that I know has a lot to do with 1 Timothy 2.4, which says God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants to bring life to us. He wants to bless us to be a blessing. He wants to fill us so that we overflow to the world around us. And in the the week that's just been, uh, I was reminded of a vision and a word he gave us a few years ago uh, that came up again uh, in a different way this past week. And I just wanted to share it with you as we close. Uh, I've tried to put up the map there so that um, (laughs) it's... Not the best in terms of how big it is, but... So one side is just the normal map of up The other, I've highlighted the borders and the main two arterial roads. And one of the things I just hit me straight away is that there's almost a little cross that runs through our suburb here. And I just love that because it, it sort of marks the turf. <laughs> it's Jesus' land. And uh, we'll continue to pray and bless that over our suburb, but... Um, the vision itself was not about that. It was actually pointing out, uh, as God showed this map, that it was a, like a heart. It has four chambers, or it's divided into four chambers. And in this vision, the heart was pumping blood. And the blood, if I can get my science right, the deoxygenated, the deoxygenated blood was being pumped through, the, coming back to the heart to be taken to the lungs to receive oxygen, and then pumped out again uh, to the rest of the body that needed the supply. And the image and the vision of God was that as people come into the area who are either have run out of oxygen or who need it for the first time, he's going to fill them back up or he's going to fill them for the first time and they'll be raised up and sent out for the glory of God in other areas or in this suburb itself or wherever they're situated in life. But I just think it's a beautiful picture of what God is going to do through us. He's going to bring people our way where the breath, you know, the spirit is the breath in Scripture. There's that metaphor. And so as uh, people, the blood pumps, so to speak, as people uh, come through this area and come through our church, we as the lungs are going to breathe life back into them. And some of the ways I've already seen that happen is when people have come into our midst here from They've been burnt out or mistreated by other churches or have been away from church for a long time for their own reasons. You know, some people have been going through terrible, awful, tragic circumstances. And God has just, in his own gentle way in our midst here, without us even doing anything in particular to help, he's brought them back to life. He's rebuilt them. And they've gone from strength to strength and glory to glory. And some have stayed and some have gone, and it's beautiful. But it's a perfect example of what this picture of the heart is. And we're going to play a part in bringing hope, fresh hope, fresh faith, fresh love, new life, oxygen, back into the lungs of people who have known him and people who have never known him. To God be the glory. As I close, there's just one <laughs> counter to this that uh, the Lord uh, didn't have it last night, but He reminded me yesterday morning that um, He took me to the story of Caleb, and it was for myself in particular, but also for us as a church, because often the things that stop us from embracing the plan and purpose for our lives is fear. You know, and the story of Caleb is an interesting one because Moses gathers. Uh, The leaders of the 12 tribes and sends them on ahead into the land they were going to take. So God's told them the dream. You're going to take this land. You're going to set up life there and we're going to be the people together in this place. But as the 12 spies go into the land and come back and report, two of them say we can do this. Ten of them say we can't. And the reason they can't, and I'll try and read the passage, and I'm sorry this is a bit on the fly, but I just felt the Lord wanted me to touch on it. It, The passage comes from Numbers uh, chapter 13 and 14. And I'll read from this part of verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Later on, it goes on to say, and this is Caleb again, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. Two promises. The presence of the Lord is with us, and his pleasure, his favor is with us. Caleb saw that in the purposes and plans of God, he would accomplish what he set out to do. But ten of them were afraid of what going into that land would mean for them, and they ran away, and they ended up dying in the desert because they missed what God was doing and wanted to do. And so as we close this morning, I just want us to reflect, is fear holding us back? Is anxiety either about not knowing what's to come or about the details that are yet to play out, or just in thinking that God's going to ask you to do something you don't think you can do. You know, we all have those moments. I'm explaining this story because it's a word first for me, but maybe for some of you. The trick to a fear like this is not that we try to, you know, just gather ourselves up, but that we go to the Lord in honesty and transparency and we just confess it to him and say, Lord, you know what? I am afraid. And I do worry about what you're going to ask me to do. And I do worry about the twists and the turns that you're going to ask me to take. And I don't know if I'm up for this journey. And then as we confess that, as we turn to him instead of away from him, I believe the transformation will come and he'll give us boldness and courage and confidence and trust as we just take one step at a time together and in our own lives individually let's pray as we commit this to the Lord Father first we just want to acknowledge that you do have a plan and a purpose for our lives and we want to apologize for the times where we seek our own path where we get caught and distracted in the details of life and forget to take a step back and remember that we are part of a bigger plan, a bigger picture, part of what you're doing in the world, that we get to participate and join and journey with you as you move and have your being in this world of ours. Lord, where we can be afraid, And there's a lot of uncertainty as we look ahead. We don't know all the twists and turns. I don't have all the details of what you want to do and what you are going to do. We commit that to you, Lord. We just, in honesty and openness of our hearts, acknowledge that but for you, there would be no hope. (laughs) We need your grace. We need your power. We need your boldness and courage. We need to have eyes of faith and trust that will help us move on in this journey. Come and supply our every lack. Holy Spirit, lead us on. Transform us by your power. Take us deeper into the love of God where there is no fear. Lord, we remember that at the end of Joseph's life, he was able to look back and say, what was intended for evil, you turned out for good. Lord, whatever comes our way, I know it will be for good. Be glorified in our midst. Lead us forward, we pray, in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear from you. If you would like prayer, please submit a prayer request at mounties.org.au forward slash prayer or send an email to communications at mounties.org.au and one of our team will be in contact. Have a great week.